You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. We continue on in our study of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And I had something happen uh, a couple days ago that really reminded me of where we're headed in this passage and really in the last eight chapters of Luke that we've been in. We sell and buy a lot of stuff on Craigslist, and we had something listed for sale. And uh, there was a gentleman who was coming out to, to see it and didn't know who he was, of course. And the phone interactions we had, he was kind of rough and, you know, not a lot of words, and eh, that's fine. But it seems like whenever someone's coming from the other side of town, they always get lost trying to find our house. I don't think our house is that difficult to find, especially in the day of, you know, Google Maps and maps and whatever. So anyway, he got lost. He was out on the far side of Gresham here, and I said, oh, no, 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 okay, head back to the highway, go down to 180 first, and then just follow it. And that'll almost take you to our doorstep. So he did that, and he shows up. What I didn't realize was that he had tried to call my cell phone again in transit, didn't get a hold of me, and so he dropped into my voicemail and left me a message. Well, on my voicemail on my cell phone, it says, you know, hi, this is Pastor Jay. I can't come to the phone, yada, yada, yada. So he shows up, he gets out of the car, and the first thing he says is, you're a pastor. <laughs> and I thought, well, yes, A, and B, how do you know that, you know? <laughs> and because he knew I was a pastor, then this man of few words began to talk, and it starts to rain. And he's holding the tape measure I'd given him to measure what I was selling to him to see if it would fit, and he wasn't interested in that. We stood in the rain and talked for 15 minutes. What happened? What changed? In his eyes, my identity changed because now I had a title, and that title meant something to him, and he responded accordingly. The last eight chapters of Luke, Luke has very deliberately been building this tension over the identity of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? This is, I would submit to you, the most important question you will ever ask and hopefully answer in your entire life. This is the absolute heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of the Bible. Who is Jesus? And once again, we're going to grapple with this idea, this reality, this necessity of identity. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus continuing to establish his identity through the use of his authority and his power. We saw him have power over disaster and demons and diseases and even death. And if you were with us last week when Gary Bashirs took us through the passage that precedes this one, now he gives that authority and power to his disciples. And they go out in his name, in his authority and power, and they cast out demons and heal people and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's amazing. And then these 5,000 people show up, more than that actually, probably closer to 10 or 15, including women and children. Thousands and thousands of people, and Jesus says to the disciples, you feed them. Remember that from last week? And they say, how are we going to do that? And once again, he demonstrates his power and performs this incredible miracle. But there is this tension now that's been building in these last eight chapters, and it's going to come to a head in this passage in chapter 9 that we're going to look at today. And it is profoundly impactful and practical for your life and mine. Because who Jesus is, what his mission is, deliberately relates to you. 
It defines my identity and yours, the mission and focus and purpose of my life and yours. And in all that, he's going to define what it means to follow him. If he is your God, if he is who he says he is in your life, then these are the terms of what it means to follow him with your life. So with that said, if you have a tablet, have a phone, turn it on, pull it up to Luke chapter 9, verse 18. If you have a hard copy Bible, God bless you. You're one of my people. Read that. And for those of you who don't have any of those options, we're going to put it up on the screens like we always do, and I will read the passage to you. So a lot of verses to cover here. We're not going to cover all of the rest of chapter 9, starting at verse 18, but we are going to cover a lot of ground. This is what I want you to watch for. Who do people say who Jesus is? Who do the crowd say he is? Who do the disciples say he is? Who does Jesus himself say he is? And who does God the Father say Jesus is? Watch for that in what we're about to read. Here we go. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Next story. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared, and it covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice from the cloud said this, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And then we'll jump forward here. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So let's start with Jesus' identity. What was the crowd saying? And we've seen this theme for those of you who have been with us through 
these previous eight chapters. Well, some say he's John the Baptist. Well, he can't be John the Baptist because John the Baptist is dead by this point. He's, he's been beheaded. Okay, so he's not John the Baptist, and he can't be Elijah. We just read in the Transfiguration, which is what that second passage was that I just read to you, the second part of the story, Elijah appeared on the mountain with Jesus. So Jesus isn't Elijah, and he's not one of the prophets of long ago. None of the prophets of long ago had the authority and the power that Jesus did. None of them went around forgiving sins. None of them went around declaring themselves to be Lord of the Sabbath. So the answer is, which of those is he? None. Jesus never claimed to be John the Baptist. He never claimed to be Elijah. He never claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be far, far more than that. So who do the disciples say he is? Well, Peter, probably speaking representatively for all of them, say, you are God's Messiah. That's exactly right. But which Messiah? Well, God's Messiah. But we know, just from going back to history during the first century, there were a number of messiahs that appeared claiming to be God's Messiah, claiming to free the people politically from the hated Roman Empire and to bring the kingdom of God like the scriptures promise. But Peter says this is God's Messiah. And it's easy for us to look back on this wrestling with Jesus' identity, especially among the, Jesus, the Jewish people, and to say, how can you not get it? Seriously? How can you not realize who Jesus is? But there is some reasonable explanation for that. And this is a, a little quote that I found out of a commentary that I was studying this week, and I think it's really helpful. So let me read this to you. This is out of the NIV application commentary. Hang in there with this, because it, it, it matters. We know that the Jewish faith rooted in the promise to Abraham, pondered how to put the Old Testament revelation together when it came to how God would finally deliver his people and bring his rule back to earth. There were passages of hope that the end would produce, now get this, a great prophet, a great king, a great figure who received authority from God, a servant figure who would proclaim God's hope and yet suffer, and a salvation where God would be present in the life of the community with an intimacy that meant the law had been written on the heart. All these strands of prophecy contended with each other in Judaism along with various priestly images. The Jews struggled to determine how many end-time figures there might be and what their relationship to each other would be. And it was into this world that Jesus stepped. So which of those Messiah-type figures was Jesus? All of them. In one person. No wonder they were struggling with how all this fit together. And what does Jesus very deliberately do when he responds to Peter? What is the title that he uses? For those of you who know your Bibles, this is the most commonly used title by Jesus for himself. He says this over 80 times in the four Gospels when he's describing who he is. And for those of you who know your Old Testament, this reaches hundreds and hundreds of years back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and it draws from this vision that Daniel himself had. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So he approached God the Father. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Sounds like God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. That sounds like God. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That sounds like God. Yep, correct answer. Jesus was making it extremely clear every time he said son of man who his identity was about, who he was. So who does the father say he is? This is my son whom I have chosen And once again, this theme that we've seen all through Luke, don't just hear what he has to say, listen to him. That's a pretty amazing endorsement. You ever had someone endorse you with authority and power and responsibility? When I first started out in vocational ministry, I was a junior high pastor and we had this camp that we would do for our leadership, and there's about 30 or 40 of us, and technically I was second in command, although I never really was given authority or responsibility, and I was grateful for that. But one day, the executive pastor who was running this leadership retreat had to leave during the day, and there were a group of us gathered out front. Some of us were playing basketball or just hanging out or whatever because we were kind of on a break with what we were doing. But he rolled up in his car, rolled down the window, and in the presence of everyone there, he made sure that it was loud enough for everyone to hear. Jay, I'm leaving for the day. You're in charge. I'll be back. But until I get back, you do what needs to be done. And he rolled up his window, drove off. And everybody went, (laughs) you know, and looked at me. Why? Because of the endorsement of authority and power and responsibility I was just given. It was very deliberate that the Father said this in the presence of Peter, James, and John, who would be the leaders of the church when Jesus was resurrected. So all this boils down very practically to this. Who is Jesus to you? Oh, he's God. Good answer. But is he your God? Because if he's your God, then you don't just know about him, you know him in an intimate relationship. Oh, he is my God. Okay, good. Let's take that for a test drive. What's he teaching you? How's he changing your life? Not just modifying your behavior. How is he changing you? When's the last time you heard him say through his written word or through another means that he would use to tell you that he loves you? You know, in this season of life, one of the things that the Lord continues to communicate to me through his word, through our time together, through the rhythms of my life, and I'm so grateful for this, He doesn't love me because of my behavior. He knows that I default back to sinfulness and selfishness and dirty stuff that I would never, you know, want anybody else to know about in terms of my attitudes and sometimes what I think. And he knew I was going to be like that, and he still loves me. Doesn't mean it's okay, but because he loves me, I can choose not to live like that. In fact, that's my motivation not to live by, like that. It's not to get him to love me more. He already loves me, but because he loves me so much, why in the world would I settle for brokenness and sinfulness? 
do you understand? This isn't about a principle. Knowing Jesus is about a person. And it's more than behavior modification or becoming a moral person or a nice person or, uh, you know, it's way more than that. It's more than your ticket being punched and getting to go to heaven someday. This is about him transforming you, making you into the person he always intended you to be. And the way he's going to do that is not in the way you would expect. In fact, his entire mission, his entire focus, his entire purpose is not going to play out the way any of us would expect, especially the disciples. This is the first time that Luke captures for us where Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to die, and I'm not just going to die. I'm going to be rejected by the Jewish leadership, which really represents the entire nation. The entire nation is going to reject me. I am going to be killed in a very humiliating, horrible, horrific, suffering way, but then I'm going to be raised to life. You know what, team? We're going to win by losing. No wonder they didn't get it. I mean, for those of you who are into your March Madness bracketology and have formed your brackets, who forms their brackets with the plan that my team's going to lose and therefore I'm going to win? What? Can you imagine in the, in the final game, in the championship, the team that loses, the coach stands up at the press conference afterwards and says, we won by losing. This was exactly the plan. This is how it was going to play out. I'm so glad it worked out this way. Yeah, you're fired. You know, <laughs> really? But that's the plan. That's the mission. And we see this pattern of suffering and glory all throughout the Old Testament, and nothing is going to stop him from doing this. Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Another way this could be translated is that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Now, Jewish readers and listeners, hang in there with me with this. When they heard this, because they knew their Old Testaments, because they knew those scriptures, their minds would immediately go back hundreds and hundreds of years to something that had been written long, long centuries before Jesus appeared on the scene that said the exact same thing that speaks to Jesus' identity. It's Isaiah 50. The sovereign Lord has given me, and understand and appreciate, these are all first-person pronouns. This is an individual. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the wary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me. Who's this beginning to sound like? My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have what? Set my face like flint and know I will not be put to shame. Jesus is the suffering servant. And therefore, because he is who he says he is, he calls us to a new mission. Because when you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose to know him, he not only changes you from the inside out, you now have a new purpose, a new focus, a new mission in your life. And what is Jesus' mission? If you had to summarize it in one word, redemption. He is going to take what is broken in this world and he is going to repair and restore and renew and fix it to what it always intended to be. 
including you and me. And so if you know him, life isn't just about your personal relationship with Jesus. You're also called to mission. We as a church are called to mission, and that is wherever we see brokenness in Jesus' name, we do something about it where we can because that's what our God does. But to follow him not only means a new purpose, new priorities, new focus. You're being made into a new person. But once again, brace yourself. This new mission is not going to play out the way you would probably expect it to. Because Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms what it means to follow him in this passage. Number one, it means you will live out this new mission by denying yourself. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear that? But there's more to it than just denying yourself. In fact, you do this all the time, whether you know Jesus or not. You intuitively get this, you practice this, and you actually believe in this and buy into it. And I'll prove it to you. If you want to lose weight, what do you do? Any denial that needs to happen there? And I'm not talking about the denial that says, I can eat whatever I want. No, no, no. The denial that will actually get you to your weight goal. And of course there is. You limit your portion sizes. You limit what you eat, when you eat, how often you eat, how much you eat. There is a very definite denial that's going on on the food side of things. Now, we all know you, know you need to exercise more and there's other things you do, but is there a denial associated with weight loss to get you where you want to go? The answer, yep, if you're serious about it. Yeah. Okay, so if you want to have a lasting, intimate marriage, is there a denial that you need to practice in order for that to happen? And the answer for those of us who are married is, oh yeah. You don't get to have the last word every time you want to have it. You don't get to always be right, even though you think you are. And so it goes, right? There is a necessary denial that needs to happen there in order to get where you want to go. In fact, just by, by way of example, this last Thursday, he's not here this morning because he's preaching at another church, but Gary and Sherry Brashear celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this last Thursday. Folks, we have a church full of 50th wedding anniversaries and better. In no small part because both spouses practice this denial. If you want good grades, if you're a student, when it's really sunny outside, at some point, you've got to deny yourself going out and actually doing your work in order to get the grades you want and to get where you want to go. If you're a parent or a grandparent and you have a young adult or adult or even a teenage granddaughter or son or daughter and you want them to talk to you, then you don't dispense advice unless it's asked for or otherwise they won't come talk to you, right? If you want to be a friend, a good friend, you want to have friends. There are going to be times your friends need you. You're going to have to not deny yourself the use of your time or what you want to do on your terms, on your timetable, so you can make yourself available to them, especially if they're in crisis. You guys, you get this, you practice it, and it's also part of your relationship with Jesus. Giving up something in order to get something better and to get you where you want to go. But it gets harder. What else did he go on to say? You need to take up your cross if you're going to follow him. Man, talk about a gut check this morning. Okay. Did the disciples know what a cross was and what it meant? Oh, yeah. Hundreds of mostly men 
had been crucified in their region. Crucifixion was not only a horrendous way to die, it was a humiliating way to die. Exposed, naked, all your dignity stripped away, and a prolonged death of excruciating pain. In fact, we get the word excruciating from crucifixion. That's where it actually comes from. Horrible. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that you might possibly lose your life to follow him, which is so far from the frame of reference from so all of us. We, we just don't live like that or have to face that, but yes. But there's an even deeper layer here than being willing to give up your life. It's are you willing to trust and obey him even when it's hard, even when it costs you, even when there's a price tag. And boy, does this have a lot of different looks in relationships. This is the person who stays in a hard marriage or a hard relationship when they'd rather get out. And understand in these examples, there's all sorts of variables and nuances, but go with me for a minute here. This is the person who wants to be married, and for some reason they're not. And so are they going to be bitter at God and shake their fist at God and blame God because this hasn't been fulfilled in their life? Are they going to allow it to rule their life? This is the person who has to set a boundary in, a, in an unsafe relationship, and they get criticized for it. This is the student who loves Jesus, and they look around, and none of their friends do, or at least they may say they do, but they're not living for the Lord. So what do they do? This is the person who has that health struggle that they go toe-to-toe with every day. It's chronic, it's awful, their body doesn't work right. But instead of always making life all about them, they look to be a blessing to other people by showing concern for other people with health concerns because they they get it. They're living it too. And it's not that their needs aren't legitimate, it's just that life isn't all about them. They're willing to show concern and care and compassion and interest in other people and not just look to themselves. Do you see where this is going? It isn't a question, if you know Jesus, if, if you will have to take up your cross. It is a question of when. Because Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. And following him is radically different and far more significant than just saying, yeah, I love Jesus and it having no real impact on your life and mine. Some years ago, when we were visiting my son in Montana, our son in Montana, one of his friends had just received the Lord in his life, and we went out to dinner, and we were talking and hearing about that, and I was amazed at how much this new Jesus follower understood what it meant to follow Jesus. And I remember him making this statement that just kind of blew me away. He said, you know what? I'm realizing that there needs to be less of me, the broken me, the unredeemed me, the me that I gravitate back to that's sinful and selfish. There needs to be less of me and more of Jesus in my life. And I am discovering who I am because of what Jesus has done for me in a way that I just never dreamed was possible. And the reality is, this statement where Jesus makes about losing your life in order to save it and saving your life by losing it is one of the most repeated sayings he has in the Gospels. 
It's mentioned twice in Luke, twice in Matthew, and in the other Gospels. There's something there for us to understand and appreciate, that you can only truly know yourself by knowing God. And conversely, you can only truly know and understand God by knowing yourself. And I know that sounds like psychobabble. It is not. It is enormously practical. Because when you know Jesus and he lives inside you through his Holy Spirit, there really has been a transformation from the inside out in your life. You have what the Bible calls a new heart, which means that in your heart of hearts, your deepest desires are to live life God's way on God's terms. Maybe not necessarily your strongest desires in the moment because oftentimes our strongest desires are sinful ones. But our deepest desires, the desires that will most fulfill you, bring you the most joy, bring you the most happiness, bring you the most peace, bring you the most fulfillment, those are from the Lord. And Jesus kind of summarizes all this by saying, man, you can have the world by the tail, to use a cliche from our culture. You can have everything going for you. And if you don't have me, you don't have anything. You can have success, you can have comfort, power, approval, success, all the things that our broken culture tells us is our identity. All the things that our culture constantly communicates to us should be our identity, should be our focus, should be our purpose. Jesus says, uh, no, you can have all that and it's not going to work out so well for you. Man, good luck with that because luck is all you're going to have at the end of the day because what he offers is better. This is not a new story. It's actually an old one. But I ran across it after doing some research, and I think it captures the heart of what we've been talking about here this morning. I saw a commercial recently with this guy in it, Michael Phelps, and it was actually pretty funny. I thought it was a pretty funny commercial. And I thought, you know, I remember a couple years ago around the time of the Summer Olympics when he started polishing off the kajillion medals you see on the screen behind me that he has now won. And I remember hearing something about his spiritual journey, but I don't remember what it was, so I went and researched it. So the article I'm going to read to you is a couple years old. This was written in 2016. Actually, it came out at the tail end of the Olympics when he was winning his final gold medals. And this is what it says about Michael Phelps. Superstar swimmer Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, nearly took his life two years ago. His athletic prowess and success had brought him so much attention over the last decade that sports media nearly worshipped him. But Phelps was struggling to find peace in his heart. He felt empty inside and sought to fill his pain with drugs and alcohol, which sent him into a downward spiral. And some of you remember these news stories. I sure do. In 2009, he was suspended from swimming for three months after a photograph of him using a bong went viral. But that didn't stop him from partying and living on the edge. In fact, things got worse, culminating in his second DUI arrest in 10 years. Phelps was at his lowest of lows. In the days after his arrest, he isolated himself and kept on drinking. He admitted in an interview with ESPN, I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. I thought the world would just be better off without me, and I figured that was the best thing to do, just end my life. 
His gold medals couldn't console him, and he had no purpose to keep on living. The most decorated Olympic athlete in history, and this is his story. Providentially, his family and friends convinced him to check into a rehab center and to deal with his issues. At first, he was reluctant to open up, but after some time, he accepted this and started on the path to recovery. Phelps brought with him to the rehab center the book, The Purpose Driven Life, by Rick Warren. It had been given to him by former Baltimore Ravens linebacker Ray Lewis. And he not only read it, he began to share it with the fellow patients. They gave him the nickname at the rehab center, Preacher Mike. He thanked Lewis for the book, saying, Man, this book is crazy. The thing that's going on, oh my gosh, my brain, I can't thank you freaking enough, man. You saved my life because you've turned me into believing that there is a power greater than myself and there is purpose for me on my planet. And leaping forward here to the conclusion of the article, by the grace of God, Phelps was rescued from the pit and brought into life. Phelps may not be perfect, but his newfound Christian faith in Jesus has given him a new direction. His success still puts him on the platform, and the media continues to worship him, but this time, Phelps seems to have a better sense of who he is in the grand scheme of things and what really matters. He understands that gold medals, no matter how many one can accumulate, have no power to save. The most important question you can answer this morning is who is Jesus? If he was who he claims to be, if he was who he said he was, if he did what we celebrate this week and what will culminate on Easter weekend at the end of this week, then that has profound implications for who you are, your mission in life, and what he has for you, the blessing that can be yours. But as we prepare to go from here, I want to leave you with these words. And counterintuitively and ironically, as hard as these words are, they are the path to joy and significance and hope and fulfillment and purpose and peace. Because Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? You don't have to lose or forfeit yourself. You find yourself in Him. So let me pray His blessing over you as we go to live for Him. Lord, I thank You for each person here, and I pray that as we go from here, we would remember who You are, the mission You call us to, what You have done for us and the empowerment that you give us through your spirit to live the very life of blessing and joy and hope and purpose that you call us to. Lord, for many of us, it's not about trying harder. It's about believing more. So would we? Would we believe you and take you at your word? And for anyone here this morning who has stepped over from death to life by knowing you, by receiving you into their hearts, Lord, would you now begin to change them from the inside out and reveal who you are? Thank you, Lord, for this sweet time to be with you. And it's in your name we pray. And God's people said, amen. amen. So go and live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.